if a client needs help moving, we try to find a truck and go to the house and throw things in it and see if we can get them across town. If their kids need to get to school and the, the parents are having trouble doing it, we've had many attorneys that have driven kids to school and picked them up. Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. And in this episode, I'm going to talk to Blake Strode, who's the executive director of Arch City Defenders in St. Louis. Arch City Defenders is a legal services organization that provides holistic representation to poor folks. What does that mean? Well, that's kind of the point of the podcast, so you have to wait and see a little bit. But essentially, you'll hear Blake describe a multifaceted approach to advocacy and a view of clients' whole lives as opposed to just working on people's criminal cases or one specific part of someone's case. And we'll talk about managing a holistic organization and the work that Arch City Defenders is doing. So here's our conversation. So I'm going to start with an easy question. Um, what is Arch City Defenders and how is your practice different than a more traditional public defense office? Sure. So Arch City Defenders is uh, a, a 501c3 nonprofit uh, legal organization, and we provide a variety of legal services to uh, indigent people in St. Louis. And and. Our mission is to combat the criminalization of poverty and state violence against poor people and people of color. And so what's really unique about our city defenders is that we do that in a very uh, multifaceted, multi-pronged way. So we provide direct legal services um, of the sort, both civil and criminal, as you might see in a more traditional legal aid office or a public defender's office. Uh, we also engage in systemic litigation on a number of issues uh, that impact our clients and their communities. We engage in policy advocacy, media advocacy, and we collaborate quite a bit with <clears throat> community partners and uh, uh, community organizers, advocates, activists, uh, social service providers, both to provide services to our clients and also for uh, public education and awareness purposes. So we just, uh, we have a, a lot of things happening under one roof here at Arch City. Can you give me an example of a client that you've had um, or that Arch City has worked with mm -hmm. where those, all of those, maybe not all of them, but those services mm -hmm. have come together in a sort of synergistic way? Yeah, sure. Uh, it does. It, it happens quite often, actually. I think um, one, I'll give you a couple examples. One one good example of this is uh, one of our clients by the name of Keely Font, and she is the lead plaintiff in our um, class action debtor's prison against the city of Ferguson. Uh, but we've been representing uh, Keely for several years now and began representing her because she had a number of um, municipal traffic warrants. And, and the way that our court system is structured in the St. Louis region, St. Louis County is split up into about 90 municipalities, and most of those has its own municipal court. And those municipal courts uh, are kind of the, the lowest level courts in our criminal legal system, and they uh, uh, handle anything from traffic matters up to uh, 
low-level assault cases, not misdemeanors or felonies. They're actually classified separately from misdemeanors. But this is where the, you know, by by the numbers, most of the quote-unquote criminal cases in this region are handled through these courts. And she had a number of uh, municipal traffic cases that had led to warrants. She'd been jailed repeatedly for traffic warrants held on cash bail that she couldn't afford to pay. And she, like so many to, people... Sorry, just to be clear. So traffic warrants meaning, like, so she's held she's held in jail for, for traffic violations? That's right. So uh, she, you know, let's say got a ticket for speeding or rolling through a, a stop sign or any number or... or um, Things that I do every expired day. tags, yeah, anything. Um, and then that that ticket would carry a court date, would carry, um, and potentially if if you miss that court date, then a warrant is issued. Or if you go to the court date and a fine is assessed, uh, and you miss payment on the fine, which is often the case with our clients because they don't have money to pay, then a warrant is issued for non-payment. And so she was caught in this cycle, like many of our clients have been caught in this cycle of uh, getting traffic tickets, which also became like such a major source of revenue for these towns that if you drive through certain towns, the the stopping and ticketing is constant. Um, And so getting traffic tickets, having these open cases, having those cases lead to fines that she couldn't pay, and then having traffic warrants in any number of cities at any given time. So she had been repeatedly stopped, repeatedly arrested, repeatedly held on a cash bail, and then released without these cases ever actually closing. So it's sort of this endless cycle. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was the situation that she was in when we started representing her. And the first thing, you know, from a sort of direct services standpoint that we did was start entering on those cases, getting warrants recalled, um, filing what we call indigency determinations to say, you know, the city of Ferguson says she owes $1,500. Well, she can't pay that. Here's her very limited income. She has nine children. She's the um, provider. And on that basis, trying to get fines abated or converted to community service or resolved in, in some other way. And so that was the our first uh, the first services that we provided to Keeley. After seeing the way that this was playing out systemically with Keeley and many other of our clients, in 2015, Arch City filed the first of what is now many uh, debtors prison federal debtors prison class action cases. And the, at the root of those cases are equal protection and due process claims about the treatment of indigent people in the municipal court system. And so Keeley has been a plaintiff in our case against Ferguson, in a case against city of Jennings, in a case that was filed in 2016 against the city of St. Anne and, and other cities that St. Anne jails on behalf of. Um, and so she's been incredible in terms of being willing to push back against some of these systems that have caused such hardship in her life. In the city of Ferguson alone, she was held for 54 days at one point Mm. for traffic violations just because she couldn't afford to get out. And so she's been a part of our direct services in that way, our litigation. Um, We've represented Keeley on a number of housing issues, issues with landlords, her children, because of the housing insecurity, have experienced difficulties with local school districts who have sought to, uh, who have sort of challenged their 
um, right to be in the school because they no longer live in the district. And, and of course, there's a federal act called the McKinney-Vento Act, which says that if a child is experiencing housing insecurity and homelessness, they have a right to remain in the school district where they began. And so we've had to intervene on on her and her children's behalf to have their children um, not be uh, impacted by the housing insecurity and not be uprooted from school in the middle of the year. Uh, and then, of course, she's just been a public advocate as well. When I talk about the sort of policy advocacy and media advocacy, she's done any number of appearances and panels and really helped educate people on what happens when you are poor and black in St. Louis County and don't have the money to navigate these systems. And so she's a really great example of someone who who, who really kind of embodies the um, holistic work at Arch City Defenders. And uh, both from the standpoint, I think we use holistic in a couple of ways. And one is that we provide a number of wraparound services. I think that's the more traditional understanding, but it's also this kind of multifaceted approach that I'm talking about, that it's the direct services, it's what you might think of as social work, it's systemic litigation, it's policy advocacy, uh, and and her um, experiences with us and her willingness to engage in all of those um, forms of advocacy with us is, is a really great example, I think. Yeah, she sounds like an incredible advocate. You mentioned, whole, you know, you mentioned the holistic model. I wonder if you could mm-hmm. just um, d- you know, define what holistic defense is, and and you've sort of covered what it looks like at at Arch City. But what is sure. holistic defense? Yeah, and I think I think it is a term um, that can be used in slightly different ways, and we we use it in a couple of ways. And one of the ways in which um, we use the term holistic defense refers um, primarily to our direct services, and uh, I think of it as as an approach that means we take we take the client as we find them and we try to address all of the issues that they are facing, primarily legal issues that they're facing. But um, sometimes the the most pressing thing for our clients is not at all a legal issue. In fact, not sometimes. Most of the times, it's not a legal issue. Their problems are problems that are driven by their poverty, and so. Uh, when we take on, say, a, a municipal traffic case, we're also doing an evaluation of their housing situation and of their job situation, of their income status. Um, and we try to connect people with social services. And we have a number of uh, partners who provide um, terrific social services here in the region. And we try to connect people with um, you know, public benefits if, if they need them and qualify with housing or with rental assistance. We provide uh, emergency rental assistance and utility assistance to uh, many people who qualify under under um, a Missouri grant. Um, and so holistic defense in that sense really means that we are, yes, defending someone on that criminal charge or municipal charge or whatever the case is, but we also provide um, housing representation. We also provide benefits representation. We also provide um, uh, some, you know, what might be more traditionally considered social work services for people, because the, what we want at the end of our representation is, is for our clients to be on more stable footing than they were when we first met them. So if they need to be connected with substance abuse treatment and mental health treatment, we try to facilitate that. And so from a direct services standpoint, that's really what holistic defense means for us. Uh, and then the other, I think, sort of meaning that it carries 
when we talk about our work is, um, and this is probably more holistic representation, holistic advocacy than holistic defense. But for us, holistic advocacy means that we're not uh, merely a direct service provider, but we're also engaging in systemic and broad systemic uh, advocacy. So we're looking at the systems that are impacting our clients, the the regional criminal justice system, and uh, making evaluations about how that situ- how that system works or does not work for our clients, and how we can help to change it so that it does serve them and does work for them. And that's really where all of our every piece of litigation we've ever brought builds out of our contact with people uh, on the direct services side and listening to them, taking seriously what they tell us, and then trying to translate that into some other form of advocacy. And so that's the case in our debtor's prison cases. It's true of our um, fines and fees litigation. It's true of our police misconduct cases. It's true of our housing advocacy. Um, And so in that sense, we we act as sort of translators and try to use all of the advocacy tools that we can muster to to address both individual needs of our clients, but also uh, community needs. That's great, I, and I and I want to sort of quote unquote double click on on how you um, decide which tools to use. But before we leave the yeah. sort of holistic model, um, I, you know, Arch City Defenders has a reputation for like helping their clients move, and uh, <laughs> you know, like just really. Um, taking it to uh, the next level, and I just wonder how you um, mm-hmm. how you think about attorney or you know just staff member um, burnout and and what the experience is like uh, for folks working at Art City Defenders who are are taking on much more than uh, mm-hmm. folks at other legal services or social services organizations often do. Um, yeah, that's a great question. I. So I've been kind of describing the the um, you know breakdown of services that we provide as an organization, but a lot of uh, a lot of what I think makes us so different is the the cultural piece that you're pointing to, and and we do have a culture driven by our holistic understanding at Arch City Defenders that uh, that kind of says yes to things that many other organizations don't and wouldn't. Um, and so if a client needs help moving, we try to find a truck and go to the house and throw things in it and see if we can get them across town. If their kids need to get to school and the, the parents are having trouble doing it, we've had many attorneys that have driven kids to school and picked them up. Um, and I think a lot of that is driven by, again, the culture that was created by the founders of Arch City, um, Thomas Harvey and Michael John Voss. When they founded Arch City Defenders in 2009, uh, they brought that kind of um, attitude, that kind of sensitivity to the needs of clients. Um, and so that's really been adopted by the people who work here. And we have an incredible staff that consistently goes above and beyond. And I think don't think of themselves, ourselves, primarily or solely as attorneys or paralegals or social workers, but rather as as people who are here to serve our clients, as people who are here to meet our clients' needs. And so we try to do that in any way that we can. And and sometimes we're limited in that way, like anyone. And there there are some things we can't do. But if we 
if we can help to meet a need, we do our very best to, to try to do that. And um, that is a challenge to your point. It can, it is, it is hard work. It is, um, it, it doesn't fit neatly within the bounds of nine to five. Sometimes there's work that carries over into evenings and weekends. And, uh, I think the reason that it has been sustainable for the people who work here is because, um, we're all very invested in the mission and we all care deeply about our clients. And, uh, I always, you know, make the point of of saying because it is true that while the work is hard, it really doesn't compare to what our clients are are navigating every day, and we're reminded of that because we're in constant contact with our clients and we're hearing their stories and we know what's happening in their lives, and so I think that also is is inspiring for us and gives us uh, the ability to to push beyond more traditional constraints and and try to be the best advocates and supporters that we can for them. I wonder also if um, what the role of the sort of impact litigation and community advocacy plays Mm -hmm. in the sense that um, folks who are like seeing this on the front line feel like there's, they're also contributing to um, correcting it at a systemic level. Right. So the sense of like, I don't know, I, I, I would be, very mm-hmm. happy to know that there were, you know, if I were overwhelmed by what my clients were facing, um, that at least there were people I work with who were trying to fix it at a systemic level while I mm-hmm. tried to fix it at an individual level. Do, do you think that plays out? Yeah, I do. I think that's true uh, for the staff. I think um, it is <clears throat> it is somewhat unique to, to work, to do this kind of work and not always be on defense. So we get to, you know, we play a fair amount of defense and we also get to play some offense. And even, you know, folks whose work uh, is focused on the direct representation or holistic defense, being a part of a team that is also bringing affirmative challenges to many of these systems, I think is empowering for the people who work here. I also uh, have seen where that's really empowering for our clients. Yes. We, um, we've now developed a a kind of community of of clients that through um, both the direct services and the litigation have come to know each other, have now sort of been in community with each other and sharing stories and experiences and uh, getting to know each other and having some, you know, relation and camaraderie, camaraderie in that sense to the point that now when we, we have plaintiff gatherings every so often, and what I've seen is um, that their sort of critical understanding, which was always light years ahead of ours to begin with because they were the ones experiencing these things, but it's developed that much further over time so that um, there's now sort of a, a shared narrative and shared understanding about both what it is that has happened and is happening to them and how it is that they're pushing back against it and the critical role that they're playing in that and that they can encourage others to play. Um, and so I think it's been, but you know, both internally, that's been really important for us. I've seen it be really empowering for our clients. And, and I've also seen culturally a, a bit of a shift. Uh, and I think all of that is a credit to um, our clients and their willingness to, to, at the end of, you know, very long days and with very little resources and with a lot on their plates to to 
help educate people about uh, what they experience on a daily basis. Is that something that you all deliberately work into your practice, like um, helping to sort of contextualize, um, you know, what what your clients are experiencing, or is it something? Do you wait for a client to come to you and express an interest in um, in seeing the system more broadly? How do you how do you sort of transition, I guess, from um, yeah. or help your clients develop their voice as advocates? Yeah, that's a great question. I it, I think it happens in a number of ways. Sometimes um, sometimes there are issues that we are aware of and that we've been, you know, researching and doing some investigation into. And then we meet with a client uh, who uh, sort of perfectly represents that issue. And and then we're able to have a conversation about uh, how it potentially could fit into some sort of broader advocacy, whether litigation or whether, you know, media advocacy or whatever the case may be. Other times, uh, honestly, the clients have have pushed us. Mm. Um, it it really is the case. I think that uh, impacted people have a sense that something is wrong long before mm. you know the lawyers and policymakers ever get to it. And so, <clears throat> people in this region, you know, if we take again municipal court reform, debtors' prisons, and as an example, people in this region uh, who lived in uh, communities impacted by the most destructive practices in uh, municipal justice systems have known and and said and openly discussed for decades the ways in which um, local police departments, municipal courts, jails were being used as ATM machines, were targeting poor people and black people. Um, that wasn't a secret to any of our clients or, you know, the families and communities they come from. And so it's often the case that when we are um, assessing our client situations and getting, you know, an understanding of the facts of what's happened to them, that, you know, it may not be articulated in the form of a, a constitutional claim, but people are saying things to us like, you know, this is this police department is dirty. These, this city has been doing this to us for years. Um, something's wrong here. They shouldn't be able to do this. They shouldn't. And that's what then triggers us to go, okay, we agree this is wrong on a moral level, but let's actually look at the um, legality. Let's actually look at ways of challenging this, either in the courts or, or outside of the courts, which is an equally um, important uh, uh, mode of advocacy for us. Do you think that uh, the holistic model as you all are practicing it or something similar to it is replicable <laughs> replicable um, to other yeah. organizations? Do you think you have to, you know, Art City Defenders was rather entrepreneurial, right? You know, they mm -hmm. founded a new organization or I'm thinking of the Bronx Defenders. They yeah. decided not to reform existing organizations but start their own. And I wonder mm -hmm. how um, how you would advise folks who wanted to adopt more of this model in their own practices. Yeah. Well, I, I absolutely think it's replicable. And, and 
um, would love to see more of it. The the idea behind Arch City Defenders was to help fill a gap in services. Uh, there was the public de- there was and is a public defenders service that um, deals with more serious criminal cases, uh, misdemeanors and felonies, and depending on where you are, the the um, availability of public defenders obviously varies greatly. And Missouri is a state where uh, I think our funding of our public defender system is 49th out of 50th, I want to say. Um, and it's not great. Then you have, yeah, right. And then you have traditional legal services organizations that uh, provide civil legal services for indigent people and um, solely direct services or, you know, perhaps some community education programs or something like that, but no systemic advocacy, systemic litigation. Uh, and so that's our city defenders began specifically for, with the purpose of filling that gap in services that wasn't being met by either of those two major service providers for indigent legal service providers for indigent people in this region. And that's a gap that exists most places because of the way that we've um, that we fund as a society legal services for indigent people, there tends to be this gap that is then unmet. And it's both a gap for something like uh, traffic courts or municipal courts or whatever the, the variant is within any particular local context and the direct services related to those cases. But it's also a gap in terms of uh, broader systemic advocacy because that's not funded by a traditional legal services corporation. It's certainly not um, allowed by public defenders who, and and I'll note that both of those organizations are well aware of many of these issues because they represent people, but they're actually limited in terms of what they're allowed to do. And so I think it's really important to have organizations that are flexible enough both to do the kind of triage work that people very much need and also to help, you know, to be the the sword as well as the shield. So let's talk a little bit then about um, what it's like to manage an organization like Arch City Defenders. I guess specifically, why don't you tell us just a little bit about how you ended up at Arch City Defenders? Um, Sure. And then we'll talk about the sort of arrows in your quiver. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm from St. Louis initially. I grew up in St. Louis County, graduated from um, public high school in St. Louis County, North St. Louis County. And uh, in total was away from the area for about 10 years and graduated from law school in 2015. And the last year, or yeah, sorry, 2015, the last year of law school, my 3L year, um, that August was when Mike Brown was killed and when the the Ferguson uprising began. And I was sort of watching that play out from a distance um, as a law student thinking about where I was going after law school. And I'd always thought about coming back to St. Louis, but um, it probably was uh, the second of, of two options. And it really sort of shifted my focus and shifted um, my desire in terms of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And 
So I really started looking for work in St. Louis and looking for ways that I could be a part of the important social justice and racial justice work that I knew was happening here. And um, I stumbled uh, across Arch City Defenders actually because a friend sent me a, a um, Washington Post piece about the work that they had been doing in municipal courts, about a white paper that um, Thomas had written that White papers do make a difference, yay. They do sometimes make a difference. (laughs) And in this case, it made a huge difference because, you know, they'd been working on this white paper for months before Mike Brown was killed, before, you know, Mm pre-Ferguson. And it perfectly diagnosed so many of the the policing courts, jail issues that were driving a lot of the anger and frustration in that community in that community and in many similarly situated communities. And uh, so, you know, Arch City was properly getting some credit for having seen this problem and and trying to do something about it. And that was when I first came into contact with uh, the organization and with Thomas and um, applied for a Skadden Fellowship to come to Arch City and actually applied with a, a housing focused project, which is something that I worked on a lot in law school. And fortunately got the the fellowship, which is a two-year fellowship, came back in September of 2015. And uh, shortly before I started, we, uh, in conversation with Thomas and MJ, uh, we talked about a different project focus and and focusing instead on building out. This was the kind of the, the moment that our city was transitioning from purely direct services to adding a systemic litigation component, and that my project could be focused on the latter, could be focused on bringing some systemic challenges, starting with the municipal court system and then expanding to police misconduct and other um, still criminal legal related issues. And so that's actually what for the first two and a quarter years uh, here, my work my work focused on was that civil rights litigation. And during that time, we filed, I think, somewhere in the range of 25 to 30 uh, federal civil rights cases, um, collected millions of dollars, um, primarily from one uh, particularly uh, successful case against the city of Jennings that that actually started just before I got here and then um, uh, was resolved first uh, for injunctive and policy changes in the city that became a model and then later settled for $4.75 million for a class of about uh, 2,000 people. And just and out of it, curiosity, when, you, when yeah. you file a suit like that, does, you know, if you were a traditional plaintiff's uh, attorney you know, a cut of that would go to your organization. Is that also a potential funding stream for organizations like this? Yes. So that's become a very important funding stream for us. And, you know, the thing about attorney's fees, you can't exactly predict when they're going to come in and how much, but um, that, that case was, you know, the single largest influx of funds that this organization ever seen and allowed us to hire more people and to broaden our advocacy and to bring more cases. And and so, you know, sort of going back to the, to the point about how someone can bring these, um, can, can start another place like Arch City Defenders, I think it's really important to think about the ways in which attorney's fees can be generated and used to help fund 
this work because um, a lot of times in the in the public interest legal sector, um, there's a tendency to say, well, we're not about the damages. We we're just here for the injunctive relief. We're here for the policy changes. We want to change the rules, and you know the money's not as important. And I I get the thinking behind that, but actually, if you you know if you talk to any of our clients, the money's critically important. Yeah. First of all, getting getting money in people's hands makes a material difference in their lives, and then being able to sustain as an organization, it's really important to to have as many kind of funding streams as possible. And so that's. That's certainly a lesson that I think we've learned over time. So uh, I keep saying that we're going to talk about the, the sort of strategies of directing an organization like this. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought we might use the workhouse as a way to sort of structure mm-hmm. this. So I'll just tell you uh, where I'm thinking of going. Sure. Why don't you tell us what the workhouse is and, and what the problem is? And then as a as a director of an organization like Arch City Defenders or just sort of put us at the strategy table with you and um, other folks at your organization as you think about what tools you have at your disposal to try to, you know, take this down and how you think about which tools you use. Yeah, sure. Um, So the workhouse is a local jail in the city of St. Louis. It is used primarily to, almost entirely actually, to house uh, pretrial detainees. At any given point in time, it tends to, uh, the percentage of detainees in the workhouse that are pretrial ranges from 95 to 100. And just so to be super in- clear, those, so those are people who have not been convicted any, of anything yet? That's right. Okay. People that haven't been convicted of anything, and they're only there because they can't afford to bond out. Um, and and sometimes that means coming up with $20,000 cash. Sometimes it means coming up with $100, and people just don't have it. And so... Uh, the workhouse has been used for a very long time in the city of St. Louis um, to sort of warehouse poor people and black people charged with crimes. We, in our direct services, of course, have have um, represented many people charged with crimes that, that um, landed them in the workhouse. And in, uh, in the past year, we engaged in a series of bailouts with our partners, um, St. Louis Action Council, Decarcerate, STL, uh, engaged in, uh, were part of a national Black Mamas bailout, which was um, uh, an event that took place around Mother's Day with the idea of bailing out Black mothers around the country to, to both get people out of jail and also to raise awareness. And so, um, our first targeted bailout in 2017 was the Black Mamas bailout. Um, we bailed a number of people out of jail that day, connected them with legal services through us, connected them with social services as we could, um, and then talked to them and got their stories. And that was the beginning of um, a, it started a longer investigation into what was happening in the workhouse. Um, because it has also been the case for a number of years that the workhouse has been infamous for awful conditions, 
really inhumane, abusive, life-threatening conditions, everything from um, rats and roaches and other insects and spiders, people saying that they had snakes in their cells, um, to mold throughout the jail to extreme temperatures. And, and when I say extreme, I mean, this is a facility that uh, doesn't have uh, central air conditioning. And so in the summertime when, you know, same things get pretty hot in St. Louis. And so we will hit triple digits. And when that happens, the temperatures inside the workhouse are up to 120, 125, 130 degrees. Mm. And this happens perennially. Um, and during that time, we start seeing stories about um, the workhouse providing ice buckets in people's cells and uh, last summer, there was some local news coverage of detainees screaming out of their windows for help because of the extreme temperatures inside of the workhouse and people having to be rushed to the hospital. All sorts of just horrible, horrible stories. And so we started talking to people and sort of collecting some of these stories. And this led to uh, us filing a, a class action lawsuit against the city of St. Louis and the workhouse uh, in October or November, uh, which is in the, so that lawsuit is, is currently pending and, and in the early stages on behalf of, I believe, eight plaintiffs who were held, all but one uh, held pretrial and one that was held on a probation revocation. So in terms of kind of uh, showing the, the, the multi-pronged arch city approach, you know, we directly represent people charged with with offenses who have been held in the workhouse. We are engaging in systemic litigation around this issue. We're partnering with people to engage in um, a Beyond Jails campaign here in St. Louis that um, uh, raises the issues like cash bail and decriminalization more broadly, um, uh, and decarceration, I'm sorry, more broadly. And uh, we continue to, to kind of build uh, a factual understanding of what is happening internally, both for litigation purposes and for public education purposes. So it is a very good example of, of where not only it, not only something that allows for that kind of multi-pronged approach, but I think it's such a huge problem here that it really requires many um, uh, forms of attack to try to break down this system and to try to close this institution. Activists in this area have been calling for the closure of the workhouse for years. And uh, we're hopeful that if we can build enough pressure with our partners, that's something that we can make happen. I think that there, that's a good place to end it. Um, okay. Thank you so much. Please remember to rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. And of course, I always have to thank the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music and Anna White and Brooke Hopkins for their support of this project. Have a great day.